Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Rerooted. I'm Francesca Maxime, and this is where we kind of look at um, where our roots are shared, where we have shared connection, where we can actually get more tethered and dig a little bit deeper down into um, that which is already there and already nourishing that sometimes we can forget about when perhaps our limbs are severed in some way. And our guest today is Diana Fosha. She is a Dr. Diana Fosha, a contemporary psychologist who developed Accelerated Experiential Dynamic Psychotherapy, AEDP. And she currently runs a private practice in New York City and is the director of the AEDP Institute. She teaches at NYU. And she has authored The Transforming Power of Affect, a model for accelerated change, and the first editor of The Healing Power of Emotion, uh, the Effective Neuroscience Development and Clinical Practice, and that also um, is co-authored by Dan Siegel and Marion Solomon. And Dan, of course, is a friend to the Be Here Now Network. And just to uh, explain a little bit about AEDP, and then she'll get right into it, it's a form of therapy that holds every individual has an internal drive to heal and grow operating within no matter what type of trauma they've experienced. And in this therapy, those in treatment are encouraged to process painful emotions and experiences in order to develop new healthier coping mechanisms. And practitioners argue that unhealthy defensive reactions are at the root of many psychological issues, but that by processing these, people in treatment can develop healthier outlooks and eliminate unhealthy defenses. The treatment approach has its roots in several psychological theories, including attachment theory, body-focused approaches, and effective neuroscience. And Dr. Fosha was born in Bucharest, Romania, and received her bachelor's from Barnard and her doctorate in clinical psychology from the City University of New York. And I just want to extend a warm welcome. Thank you so much uh, for being with us here today on Rerooted. Uh, Diane, it's a pleasure. Such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Francesca. Looking forward to our conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anything that uh, I was sort of, you know, when you reflect, when I reflect back or, you know, you hear some of the things that others have said about you, that bio I sort of pulled from the uh, goodtherapy.org website to give them proper credit. Right. Um, you know, anything there that stood out to you as I was reading it back? Well, one is they did a pretty good job. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, um, that's nice to hear. Um, I think the part that you know, that sort of stands out to me. And it's sort of like what you, I think it was in your comments. We were chatting a little bit before, so we may have spoken about it. But I think you said it in your opening comments, is this idea that what we need is there from the get-go, is there from the beginning. Um, it may not be apparent. It may not be easy to facilitate, or it may be easier to facilitate than, when, than we suspect. But I think that's something that's so fundamental to ADP and to how I work, which is that the healing is there. And it's about sort of engaging it and bringing it forth and getting it to sort of like engage with that which is broken or that which doesn't work. But it's not like we're broken and at the end we're healed. It's like the two are side by side. Um, I love that. Yeah. I, I love that, that it's, that it's already there. And, you know, in the mindfulness communities, oftentimes we'll say things like the sun is not, not shining. It's just that the clouds are obscuring it right now. Right. And sometimes the clouds are thick, but it's always there. Right, right. And so then we, you know, sort of are trying to figure out the best approach to sort of say, all right, well, today's a cloudy day. And can we be with that? And then can we also cultivate an ability to recognize that the sun is, in fact, still shining? Right, right. And your method uses a very um, specific way of doing it that a lot of therapies don't, which is emphasizing the relational um, attachment, connection, if you will, between yes. the therapist and the client. So can you talk a little bit about how that's fundamental to the work? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that um, so many of the, if not all, or most, let's say most, to be conservative, of the trauma approaches that are out there now in this moment in time, emphasize safety as the sine qua non of what we're trying to achieve before being able to um, at least optimally do deeper work or 
work more with the trauma processing. And there are so many different ways of going about establishing safety, many of which have to do with the body or breathing or grounding, all of which are great. However, we, and that's where the rootedness and attachment comes in, we take a different approach to safety, which is the approach to safety that we, that's taken when we're infants, which is the relational approach to safety, which is that we're going to try, the, the goal is, and what we're aiming for is to create a connection, you know, to co-create a connection where the individual who's in the therapy feels safe, feels seen, and feels connected. And in a way, that's the ground. That's our ground from which then we proceed um, to do explorations. So in that way, the safety is achieved through the relationship. Right, and, and I know that you're a um, admirer of Dr. Stephen Porges's work, who um, I've talked to in the past, and his polyvagal theory approach, who really emphasizes that, and the neuroscience behind what it is that can help in terms of a relational attachment-based um, um, way. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about some of the things that might have gone um, not the way that the infant might have wanted or needed when it was a child that then can be, I won't say recreated, but created fresh and anew to reconnect with that sun that always shines that's already right. wanted, that was never gone. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think that, you know, to go to Porges, to Steve's Steve Porges's work, Regardless of one's traumatic history, um, the capacity for what he calls the social engagement system coming online, which is the nervous system's underpinnings for safety, um, it's always there. If you just, in his method, sort of manipulate, I mean, you can do it relationally, you can manipulate the environment with sound, etc. And with food, right, the breaking of bread, there's so many ways of getting people in their bodies and feeling safer. Um, now, the reason why I'm going back to that is that no matter how deep the attachment trauma is, and I'm going to talk about that in a moment, we hold the same thing with respect to attachment as we do with healing, which is that the capacity for it is always there if you present the right conditions. It doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean that you get it in a second. With some people you do, and with some people it may take a very long time. But it's a very different mindset or heart set heart and mindset for the therapist to sort of operate from a place of, I may not feel it, it may not be evident, but I know it's there versus it's not there. We have to start from scratch. We have to build it from the ground up. Those are, so it's, it's the same with attachment. You know, having said that, um, you know, there are unfortunately so many different ways in which things can go awry um, in early development, you know, from breaks in attunement, uh, which put the infant in a state of stress. You know, these are the misattunements of everyday life, but if they're done consistently, where the caregiver is missing the child and not seeing the child and not being responsive to what's needed, the stress levels rise and they don't get regulated. So that's one, one way, you know, all the way to sort of more severe conditions like the depression or the psychosis of the mother or an illness in the family. Uh, I've worked with a couple of patients who, um, where the family experienced a huge loss at the time of their birth. In a couple of cases, you know, when the, another child had just died, as this new baby comes into the world, 
And so clearly the family is in a state of trauma. The mother is in acute grief, and here's this new life coming into this world. Those are far from optimal conditions, right? So some of the other things, all the way to then trauma, illness, loss, um, you know, and the million things that can happen, you know, to put children at risk and to separate them from nourishment and, and attachment, right? And what we do know from attachment theory is that kids internalize that they internalize the, uh, that if there's a relationship between the child and the caregiver, the nature of that relationship then gets internalized and we end up treating ourselves um, sometimes or with some frequency the way our caregivers right, treated us. It's a little more complex than that, but in some essential way. Yeah, there's a real, yeah, there's a real um, <laughs> embodied adaptive learning there with what was available, which makes exactly ideal. And so we want to bow to the fact that the, the, the organism sort of knows, the infant organism kind of knows that like, here's what I need to do to make it to tomorrow, even if it's not ideally what, you know. That's exactly right. Yeah. Right? And so as you talk about that with grief, it reminds me of um, my mindfulness meditation um, teacher, mentor, Jack Portfield, um, talks a lot about how um, his teachers, I believe, if I'm quoting this correctly, uh, or, you know, alluding to this correctly, that they say somewhat something along the lines of the whole of the path or all of the path or, or much of the path is, is letting go. And, and they talk about tears of the way meaning that we're processing through oftentimes um, sort of the decalcification of, of all of this held grief over um, what I think oftentimes is ambiguous losses or mm -hmm. not connected in some way that are kind of floating around and feel like helping us, you know, survive, but feel feeling fragmented. And through this relational field with um, your model, um, you're actually calling on uh, therapists to be willing to do their own work so that they can show up in this way. Yes. And then that being the safe container that the client can step into. Yes, I think you've said, you said it very beautifully, right? It, it is, um, we talk about sort of patient safety and therapist risk-taking, you know, that like the therapist has to like really show up and be willing to be vulnerable and be willing to engage. You know, that we, that's another piece of this, which is that, you know, the old psychoanalytic model of neutrality is counter. It's not just that it's not quite applicable. It's counter to this work. You can't do this work with neutral face. You can't do this work by being aiming to be blank. Um, number one, it's hardly ever achieved, <laughs> but that's a detail, but separate from that, even the trying to suppress natural reactions to achieve this kind of neutrality is really counter to everything that the really establishing a safe relational field is about, where the affect and the empathy and the delight and, you know, whatever it is, that the other evokes, their suffering evokes empathy or compassion, their delightfulness <laughs> evokes joy or you know, whatever it is, that that's part of the co-creation of safety, that the therapist is a human and is a, an engaged human uh, at that. I, I love that you're saying that because um, I think there was a part here somewhere uh, that I had pulled from another talk that you had done that said something about the the therapist holding um, the client existing in the heart and mind of the other and how yeah. how rich and 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 nourishing that would feel I know a lot of folks want their their partners their spouses they would they would just hope that their spouse would be able to to just let them be 
who they are as they are in that moment. And yet there's so many defenses that have been built up around even allowing that. And then God forbid they've ever had a taste of it. If it isn't sustained somehow, then it can be very disappointing in a regular relationship, but in a therapeutic relationship in the ADP model, you're really showing that therapists can continue to show up and do this time and time again. So the receiver's organism can actually start to integrate what that feels like. Yeah. Again, I think you said it very beautifully. You know, there's something, you know, these are sort of small moments, but, you know, making a reference to something uh, one's patient said a couple of weeks ago um, and saying, you know, like you were talking about that and I was thinking about that or, oh, as you're talking now, I'm thinking of that. And people's eyes light up and say, you remember? Or remembering the name of the sister. Um, You know, just, again, small things and big things. But sometimes the small things, like little details, like remembering the sister's name or remembering, oh, you told me your birthday's coming up, um, can evoke such a profound, you know, sense of, oh, I exist for you. And then, of course, in deeper and subtler ways of just having a sense of what a this is what this person needs or that's how they move in the world and how I'm going to interact with them shows that I have a sense of that Uh, and feeling seen and cared about in those terms. It's just huge. People melt, Um, you know, just melt in defenses because the thing from good therapy uh, talked about defenses. Again, talked about it very well. And you have to get past defenses to get to these experiences of connection or of emotion or in the body. And sometimes these small things that aren't even intended as interventions, you know, are sort of part of the relational interacting, can be more potent than much more formal ways in which therapists try to deal with like reducing the impact of defenses just because they melt people. Right. Right. Um, Yeah. And, and, and once someone is able to allow their nervous system to kind of, as you said, melt, you know, and just like in somatic experiencing, we'll say settle, um, just sort of rest a little bit Um, in mindfulness communities at a retreat. Sometimes people will just sort of, in a couple of days, they'll drop in, not check out, but drop in. Right. Right. Different, different kind of quality there. Different qualities. And that when you feel like you can drop in, that there's something else that's possible, perhaps something fresh that can come out of that, that otherwise might not have ever been gotten to because there was a real wall around that, perhaps. Yes. Yes. You know, it's so interesting. Um, what I was doing this morning, I was finishing editing a tape because I teach from psychotherapy videotapes. So I'm preparing for a webinar that I'm teaching and I was editing this tape of a therapy I had done a couple of years ago. And I'm working with this lovely woman who simultaneously is very resilient and has had more trauma, more complex trauma than anybody can imagine. It, you know, one of these situations where you just wonder, you know, how people manage to survive and be human beings in the world. One of those histories. So we were doing, we were working with a piece of the trauma from her past. And it's sort of, we found a way to process it through. And this is somebody who just had a lot of nervous tension and a lot of self-soothing and rubbing her arms and all this kind of agitation as well as trying to contain very intense traumatic emotions. 
And after this particular set of interventions, you just see this calming in her body. And she says this very beautiful thing. She says, I finally feel like I have some space around me and I can inhabit the space. Beautiful. Which is just gorgeous. Just gorgeous. That I can inhabit the space. That it's there both. is space and that I can inhabit it. Right. Or, and maybe she even says that my body can inhabit the space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, the whole of her. Yeah. Right, right. Beautiful. Because yeah, of the safety just that was created. The safety, and in this particular case, it was the safety and having processed something through where it reverses it mm-hmm. you know it changes and you call that um transformance is that right yeah i think transformance refers actually to something a little different please explain uh transformance refers really to what we're talking about at the beginning which mm-hmm. is this drive towards healing that's inside us at uh, all times so less in right? a relational field but what's in, in it has nothing to do it can be relational it can but it doesn't need to be it's really whether if you want to be use neuroscience, it's the potential for positive neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. Or you can talk about the healing within or the sun that's always there. Um, the ideas are very similar. But I think transformance, you know, really. So I am with this woman whom I've just described, one of the just worst traumatic histories I have heard heard if she didn't want to come out of from under the table that would make sense but at the same time she's a full human being with a full life and relationships and um and it's that transformance that is at play always side by side with the trauma so that's that's the transformation got it now i got it got it so transformation in is possible as opposed to just yes right what right field and transformance is always present Um, yes and just for a second to sort of where that comes from is that you know my background prior to doing this work how i was initially trained is psychoanalytic psychodynamic which is a very rich training uh and a very but it's very pathology oriented and there's an endless and rich vocabulary for things that go wrong, but very few words for things that go right. Yes. And I was so, just thinking about that. Like, right. uh, why do we call it mental illness? Why wouldn't we call it a mental or emotional wellness? You could right. refer to the same body of work and you could frame it in a different way. Exactly. Exactly. So transformance came out of the wish to name something that's the counter of resistance, right? Resistance that gets us to put on defenses and so on and so forth. We have a term for that. So this is sort of like the counter tendency. Yeah, the reframe. Exactly. And so once we get there, like you're, you know, you're honoring the dignity and worth of the person. It's always, you know, noble and dignified. You know, um, you know, we say when you take your seat in the midst of it all and, you know, you really just remember uh, that, um, you know, Tara Brock talks about the golden Buddha underneath the clay um, that's sort of there. Um, that sometimes when we get to that place where we are connected, somehow we've gotten what we wanted. The signal cry, uh, as Diane Heller talks about, is no longer on high alert, um, that we end up becoming terrified because we have received that which we have so long time longed for. And, and how do you work with that with someone when you finally receive something that you wanted, um, which is that safe scene, soothe, kind of safe holding connection, um, and then the terror comes up in its different ways? Yeah, we call it, I mean, we call that emotional experience. We have a word for it or a term for it, which is the tremulous affects, you know, that one is shaking. And, you know, we've gone some ways to sort of, well, there are two things that happen in what you described. I think one is that because you feel 
safe. The really dark, scary stuff can now come to the fore. That's one aspect of I, ha I feel good, I feel safe. I'm letting down my defenses. So like all the stuff that I've kept suppressed now comes to the fore. And we're working with the trauma, the grief, the losses, the shame, what have you. So that's one aspect of the fear. The other aspect of the fear is healthy, which is the fear of the new. It's not the old fear. It's, I'm doing this for the first time and I don't have a script. I'm in a foreign country and I don't speak the language and I don't know how the money works or the transportation. And it's really beautiful, but like, ah. Yeah. Right? There's that fear, right? Which is the fear of the new or I'm on the edge of the diving board. And the water looks beautiful, but ooh. <laughs> right, these are normative fears. And I think that's where an attachment orientation is beautiful because it's just about holding and normalizing and saying, of course you're afraid. Of course you haven't done this before. We'll figure it out together. Right, that's... Yeah, and that reminds me of even some of the work with my clients where um, they've been... Um, you know, feeling like you're describing. And, and I've said, you know, is it, is it that it's so terrible that we know that it's so terrible or might it be something more along the lines of, um, could we be curious about whether or not um, it feels unfamiliar? Exactly. And, you know, a couple of times people have been like, oh, unfamiliar. Yeah, I don't really, don't really know what this feels like, but maybe we don't have to have um, from the mindfulness, uh, you know, language, uh, the narrative, the story around um, unfamiliar is terrible. Exactly. Doom and gloom. Right. As opposed to not quite knowing. Right. And then so how do you hold that not quite knowing, don't know mind? I'm listening to my teacher talk in, you know, my ear about this because I've heard him say it so long, but don't know mind. How do we hold that don't know, that uncertainty without having the terror of the other shoe to drop and, you know, um, while holding the first part that you said, like, yeah, of course, there's, you know, there's a piece where there might be tremulous and all of that also. Right, right. And that's a very different thing because that we have to like go deeply into it and it's an opportunity even though it's frightening and so on and so forth. On this side... And this is where I think the therapist's own work really comes in. Um, you know, I have to say for me, that work is some of my favorite work because I don't know what's, what's coming. I mean, you never know exactly. But in a funny way, when we're in the pain, that's like... I sort of know how it goes. I don't know the details. I don't know exactly how it's going to happen. But I sort of know, we know, when we're in emergence, we have no idea. And there's something so beautiful about that. And it's really that sort of the trusting the process, yeah. you know, really comes in. And, you know, um, so that my comfort and even love for the emergence. Let's see, you know, let's see what this exploration will yield. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, in that way, that's the attachment perspective, that when you're exploring, if the caregiver feels okay, the kid feels safe. If the mom is scared, then the, the child will be scared and nothing ever happens. But if the parent is saying, okay, let's see, let's check it out, what might come up? It's a very different kind of vibe that just allows that tremulousness, you know, to sort of calm a little bit and for the curiosity, you know, yeah. to come on board. Like, oh, this is unfamiliar. Let's see what happens. It's sort of cool. 
Right, right. Yeah, I might, I might actually like this kind of uh, vegetable or something. You know, I might, I, I might not, I might not hate it. Um, two things. One is that um, it reminds me of, um, you know, Eugene Gendlin uh, focusing like the, the the felt sense of, but but like what's fresh, what's the implicit, what's that, what's the thing that wants to move forward. Exactly. Your term is you know the emergence. Um, what what has yet to be born, right? And, um, because um, again, from the you know sort of wisdom teachings that. It, it, everything is in this constant state of shifting and, and, and when we're more attuned to process and not just to sort of having fixed ideas about what is always going to happen and we open with that curiosity, we can open the pathway to something new being born. And a lot of understanding around that, I think, as, as you mentioned earlier, the neuroscience, you were just talking about the, the settling there. Um, can you talk about how that informs uh, your, your work and, and even what has become a new, dare I say, more popular form of doing uh, therapeutic work around particularly trauma, uh, but also in other ways also. Yeah, I mean, um, I think there used to be so many different takes on you know, what's important in psychotherapy. And of course there are, I don't mean that, you know, everybody's in total agreement, but you know, there's something about, for instance, understanding something about the power of right brain to right brain communication or limbic resonance, right? That when you have emotion and when you have facial expressions and you attune to tone or body energy to all of these nonverbal qualities and you get entrained and attuned there's stress reduction the amygdala calms down connection is formed safety is formed it's how babies communicate just know that's science it just is in a variety of ways you know in a variety of settings we now know this about you know, both development and how we operate. You translate it into psychotherapy. It tells you something about, well, are you going to try to sort of move in in this kind of neutral, authoritative? Well, let me give you some information. Let me tell you how trauma operates. Let me tell you what happens. Do you do that? Or do you try to get in tune and connect? and? help their body calm down by maybe attuning to your body and so on and so that's just one example of how really understanding something about how we connect and what happens to our nervous systems when we do just influences sort of how we go about it um or, you know, like just a very simple, something that I learned from Steve Porges when I grasped the polyvagal theory. And I'm not going to do it justice because I always sort of forget the, the science of the eardrum. But he says, you know, that when we're in fight flight, the eardrum is either tense or not tense. <laughs> but the eardrum has a particular characteristic which allows it to register better the low sounds, which is sort of like the sound of the predators. And that when we're in that activated state, we don't process speech. The nuances of spoken language, never mind that our brains are not processing it. Even the, the, just the physical quality of the eardrum, it's not registering these fine distinctions. Well, it helped me, you know, deal with my teenage daughter. I thought there's no point in having an argument <laughs> until everybody calms down. It's a slightly, well, it's not a trivial example at all, actually. Not at all. Not it's at all. a profound one, and it affected my parenting. But also, I think, um, you know, in work with patients who are dysregulated, just understanding telling them what's going on or saying, explaining as a rule, you know, the sort of the top down is not 
you know, or challenging them on their false assumptions or something like that, that's not going to do it. You know, if you want to have a conversation, even a challenging conversation, everybody has to sort of chill out and get their nervous systems yeah. to engage and calm down. And then you can have a conversation about a difficult topic that, you know, that you're not maybe necessarily on the same side of. Yeah. And what I love about that is that, again, going back to a point that we've talked a little bit about before is um, the way in which it requires that the therapist that you're working with does their own work and has a capacity themselves to be able to regulate their nervous system and be present. And I just want to ask you about that because I think maybe a lot of folks would be terrified if they were therapists to go there and try to do that work because in some ways, um, you know, maybe they're not quite ready for that. And so, yeah, can you talk a little about that? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, it's, to be perfectly honest, that seems so hard for me to imagine. But, um, of course, it is the case. You know, I mean, again, I think it's like when we're earlier in our careers and sort of are very enamored of theories and understanding and just if I really grasp the nervous system or the polyvagal theory or these theories of trauma or ADP and transformation and I really understand it, you know, then I'll be a wonderful therapist, which can take you a fairly long way. But when we're dealing, particularly when we're dealing with things that are not primarily mediated by the cortex, and they evoke our emotions, and they evoke our attachment histories, or our trauma histories, or, or whatever, then we're out of this beautiful lovely, orderly place, you know, of the cortex. And I think you discover sort of quickly that more studying, you know, or more reading is not really going to be, you know, the route to that. And then I think that's one piece. And I think the other, there's nothing like experiential learning a quick experiential learning to sort of say, oh, it's not, it's scary, but it's also so good. You know, once you have that experience, so for instance, in our trainings, when we do trainings, you know, we do didactic trainings. And as I said, I teach a lot in ADP. We teach from videotape so that you can, so on and so forth. But we also have experiential practices people practice with each other the skills they're learning and um, at the beginning and here is something that was a sort of piece of learning for me my colleagues and I when we first started to sort of put in the experiential part the idea was that this is for the therapist that we want to give the therapist practice and we would say all of these things remember it's a training which it is take care of yourself which you should do etc but we weren't paying that much attention i mean we're paying attention to the experience of the person in the patient role so that it stayed safe but we thought the learning was for the therapist and what the feedback that we got was that it was great training for the therapist, but it was amazing training, learning in the role of the patient because you got to have an experience of what the therapy did from the receiver of it. Beautiful. Right? And this sort of like, this was from the feedback that we got from the participants. So... Just, you know, like a little 20-minute practice and a training. You know, I think that once you have a taste or you see on a videotape, mm -hmm. well, it's scary, but oh my God, look what happens when they get to the other side. Right, and you just did that with your finger to kind of whoop, like, you know, um, uh, sort of when you, when you kind of make that connection. And I've felt it and been there and been privileged to um, 
hold that space and bear witness um, and be in resonance with um, students and, and clients when they uh, sort of come there and perhaps guide or cultivate a certain you know container around that also as I know you do um, that there's something uh, in you know our meditation community is just known as insight insight meditation the the, the Theravadan tradition that that moment of really kind of getting something at a wisdom level, at a knowing level, at almost a larger level of, um, you become more at one with the knowing itself, which was already there, as we talked about, but that you're now kind of connected to that knowing, deeper understanding about it in a way that before was inaccessible. It just didn't like put two and two together. Um, but that yeah. once that's facilitated and that shift, I think to go back to Genlin's language can happen, um, that that does in fact, you know, that's like, I don't want to say you're sold, but like, then you know, things are, that, that new things are possible. Right. But I mean, it's not sold because it's not the right metaphor, no. right? It's a commercial metaphor. But I think actually Genlin has this beautiful quote that I use in my training, which is, he says something like, you know, once you have the experience of change, you no longer wander around in the desert lost looking for it. You know what it is. And even if you lose it, you know what you're going for. And I think that's very true. And it doesn't need to happen in some massive way. Just having an experience witnessing somebody else's transformation by watching a videotape or doing a little piece of work, yeah. you know, in a training where you actually have an experience of going into something that's hard, you know, going through something difficult and coming out the other side with knowing, with lightness, with expansiveness, I think makes people you know, like, in, what is it, when Hallie, Sally met Harry, I'll have what she's having, you yeah, know, like, right. I want that. I want yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly, exactly. I love that. And 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 I also want to mention, too, that because it's born out of, um, in your mod model, in your modality, the relational field, uh, and yet you're not encouraging people, of course, to be dependent on their therapist or to have a relationship with their therapist um, that lasts forever and ever necessarily. So can you explain how one can then, by, by learning this, by grokking this, by knowing this experience of change, as you just mentioned, that that becomes a part of you that you can take to perhaps work with your own self and relationships? Yeah. I mean, we've talked a lot in this conversation about the relational aspect. There's also, so there's also the personal experiential aspect so i always think that there are two dimensions operating and one is the horizontal dimension which is the relational field that's out here you know that's like this horizontal and then there's the experiential or vertical dimension which is about having an experience which is it's in the context of a relational um situation but it's one's own experience and in a way the safety facilitates it so our working with emotion or a trauma processing that i sort of referenced you know in the work that i was editing this morning with my very traumatized and very simultaneously resilient patient um, we're holding the work together but something is being facilitated that's on the inside. And it's this processing of an experience through going deep and where it was stuck. That's, that's the trauma. It gets stuck in the body. It doesn't process through. The emotion is defended against. And you're sort of helping the emotion start to flow, go through those painful places, and then um, come out the other side. Now, what we didn't talk about, which is um, an aspect of ADP that is really congruent with um, contemplative practices, and we get to, you know, crazily to some of the same phenomena through psychotherapy, rather, 
is that when we have this thing called metatherapeutic processing, which means that when somebody has an experience of change, change for the better, you know, they've gone from feeling bad to feeling good. Usually you feel good, stay with that, and that's very nice and we're done. For us, that's the beginning of the next phase of work, which is that we focus in on the very experience of change and still work with it experientially. And when you do that, these wild things happen, right? That the change and the transformation and the energy um, expands and spirals upward and there's more energy and more vitality. And it culminates in what you were talking about, these states of expansiveness and calm that feel transpersonal, feel like one's knowing is a very deep kind of knowing. You know, where people say these beautiful, amazing, poetic, paradoxical things like, you know, I have finally found my home, which I have never had. Right. Right? This gorgeous thing that feels like it's a line from a poem, but I'm actually quoting, you know, a patient who said that, you know. Beautiful. Right? So that's really, I think, this such congruence, you know, and coming at it in different ways through a contemplative practice or through this particular kind of relational and experiential psychotherapy because as i said the relationship creates the safety in a way so the person can do their work right 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 and and as we begin to wind down um i know that there's um sort of a an awareness that i would like to ask you about around the more social constructs of of trauma, like the the larger container of patriarchy or racism or oppression in various forms, socioeconomic, that we live in, and then knowing these kinds of therapeutic uh, approaches uh, are very helpful to so many people, and then also knowing uh, some of the limitations around access to uh, care for other kinds of populations that perhaps can't afford it or what where do we meet with this as 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 people as as therapists if anyone's listening as lay people as i'm just curious right i mean so we're at a moment in time um in this country where that question is becoming non-discretionary um and I think every, you know, so many people are addressing it. And that includes us in the ADP Institute. I think we're really, um, that has, you know, that's on our agenda starting at the beginning of the year of number one, sort of doing our own work with it. Um, and, and secondly, beginning to address those questions, I mean, how do we transcend that? You know, I mean, one level which we have is scholarships and fellowships for, you know, which is very important for people who it's, um, you know, training that costs money. So therefore helping people be able to afford it is a big deal. But that's just one, you know, one aspect. Um, having you know the availability and we're sort of like talking about initiatives to start to consult to agencies you know I think most most of my you know the 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 faculty of the ADP Institute I, I certainly know I have that practice you know I have a couple of you know, dedicated spots for pro bono clients who can't afford private fees and so on and so forth. But that, even those seem to me insufficient to the larger questions and which we, I think we're early in our, I mean, we're sort of doing our own work before being able to sort of address 
in a more systematic or deeper way. How do we deal with those traumas and, you know, questions of access and so on and so forth? Yeah. You know, one very specific thing that I want to mention is that we're doing research into a short-term version of the model, which is interesting because, you know, accelerated is in the term, but accelerated is relative. It just means faster. It doesn't say faster than what. <laughs> oh, yeah, don't mistake it. Yeah, right. Um, it's faster than it would otherwise take. Well, um, in, in somatic experiencing, we say slow is fast. Right. But, you know, usually in sort of the mainstream ADP, we don't work with a time limit. And we're now sort of going back to some of my earlier roots in short-term therapy. And we've created a 16-session model of ADP, which means that more people have access to it. So this is really just a very early engagement with that question, but we're engaging it. And I think that's important that you asked it. I appreciate that. Thank you. And I, I appreciate what you're doing. And, and I think it's something that everybody's looking at and everybody is trying to figure out um, what's the best way to be, um, again, going back to this relational sort of analogy, but um, not just the, the witness, but the partner, the al not, just, not just the witness and not just the ally, but the partner. Right? Exactly. How do we become that partner in um, transforming change and, uh, and of actually um, shifting things and spiraling up societally and not just, um, you know, because I think as, as we each are, are dropping the ocean, you know, we, we, we sort of change the tenor of the water, right? Um, yeah. Probably mixing metaphors again, but you get what I'm saying. <laughs> Fine to mix metaphors, bringing more things in. <laughs> well, um, is there anything else you'd like to add before we, we close um, with this beautiful heart-centered and dare I say love-centered um, approach that is a heart-mind um, uh, way of, uh, of healing? No, really, just thank you so much. This has been such a lovely conversation, and it has that sort of quality of uh, emergence in that it feels like, I just looked at the time a few minutes ago and saw that we're very close to the end of the hour and it feels like we just got started. So that's a very, so I really just wanted to thank you for a very engaged conversation. Well, likewise, and I, and I feel similarly and um, I, I hope that we can perhaps engage again in the future in some way. And um, again, for folks uh, who would like to learn more, it's AEDP. Um, this is, I believe, the latest book, The Healing Power of Emotion, Effective Neuroscience Development and Clinical Practice. And it might be a little wonky for some folks, but certainly you can and, you know, learn more in, in, in Google uh, Dr. Diana Fosha uh, for more information. And of course, she has uh, the other first book, uh, The Transforming Power of Affect, a Model for Accelerated Change. And Francesca, so, if I may give people the website for ADP, where yes. there's a ton of stuff, including a ton of papers. Please that, do. Uh, which is www.aedpinstitute.org. AEDP Institute is one word. And you can truly find a lot of resources there. So Beautiful. And we'll have that link on the website uh, Perfect. for you also. Thank you so much, uh, Diana. So much appreciation for you and all that you do. And um, I wish you well. Thank you. You as well. Thank you so much. Take care.